The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. This episode is made possible by bogeydope.com. Looking to launch your aviation career, whether it be in the guard, reserve, or civilian life, bogeydope.com can walk you through the process. They have a whole suite of interactive courses and coaches. They're there to mentor you and guide you through the process to what can be a very lucrative career. You can click the link down in the show notes below and use the code AFTERBURN to receive 5% off at bogeydope.com. Wingman Watch, founded by a fighter pilot. If you're looking for an awesome timepiece that you want to create something custom for your unit, or if you swing over to wingmanwatch.com and see something you love, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off. Or if you want to make that custom build, you can mention my name and get a discount as well. This episode is also made possible by all my patrons over on patreon.com. You can find your way there via the afterburnpodcast.com. They get early access, some behind the scenes, and much more. Again, thank you to all those who dropped over to iTunes and Spotify and left a rating or review. That helps the podcast grow. Today's episode, we're breaking down an article that came out in Air Force Times written by Rachel Cohen talking about counterfeit components that are suspected inside ejection seats. And that came to light through an investigation in Freedom of Information Act by Messer's widow. If you remember, I did an episode 23 and episode 24, an accident investigation breakdown of Lieutenant David Smith's call sign Messer, his mishap back in June of 2020, which unfortunately he was killed. His widow has filed a lawsuit against some defense companies Today, we're gonna to break down that article. Altitude, altitude. Tower 26 is released to you, runway 4 left, wind 0, 4, 0, and 5, clear for takeoff. Seat tied, altitude is eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector, close wheel, left, right, and two way. Long way, right, ramp, curve, all set, 3, 5, 4, Wide set. Thanks for listening. I'll be honest, I have recorded this episode four times. There is a version over on YouTube that's slightly different than this, but a lot of emotions that go along with this story, I think, for a lot of people, and rightfully so. The version on YouTube, if you are interested in this content, I'd encourage you to swing over to YouTube. You can search for the Afterburn Podcast, or you can go to the afterburnpodcast.com and you can find your way to the video because I'll be talking about various reports that include slides and pictures of things that I'd say a picture's worth a thousand words. So again, if you like this, I would encourage you to swing over to YouTube and, and check this episode out over there. With that being said, Jumping into an article that was written by Rachel Cohen, 
She published an article on September 14th over on Air Force Times. Again, that article is linked in the show notes below. Title Air Force, or sorry, title An F 16 pilot died when his ejection seat failed. Was it counterfeit? An Air Force investigation of a fatal fighter jet crash in 2020 quietly discovered that key components of the pilot's ejection seat may have been counterfeit, Air Force Times has learned. First Lieutenant David Smith, an F-16 pilot stationed at South Carolina's Shaw Air Force Base, died on June 30, 2020, when his ejection seat malfunctioned as he tried to escape from a failed nighttime landing. For those who are new to the podcast, I did two episodes, episode 23 and 24, about Messer's mishap. 23 was a breakdown of the accident investigation board in detail. And then in 24, I had Bender join me, who is an F-16 pilot, or was an F-16 pilot time, now an F-35 pilot, where we had a discussion to provide a little bit more context than the AIB provides, because it's rather black and white. The Air Force official inquiry in the months following the accident found that electronics inside the seat were scratched, unevenly sanded, and showed otherwise shoddy craftsmanship. That raised red flags for the Air Force Research Laboratory, that's AFRL, you'll hear me say that probably a few more times, which looked closer to confirm whether the pieces were fraudulent. According to the previously unreported slides provided the Air Force Times, it's unclear whether that question was ever answered. While the Air Force suspected parts of the seat were counterfeit, it buried the information in a non-public section of the accident investigation report. Those details came to light in a federal civil lawsuit filed by filed by Messer's widow, Valerie. She's suing three defense companies for negligence and misleading the Air Force about the safety of their products. The F-16 uh, manufacturer, Lockheed Martin Collins Aerospace, which builds the ACES-2 ejection seat that we're talking about here, as well as multiple business units of Teledyne Technology are being sued over this. And they're being sued specifically about the digital recovery sequencer, the DRS, digital recovery sequencer. That's the component that failed on the seat. Teledyne's website, and again, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's a little bit, there's more videos and pictures that go along with it. But that DRS unit, over 7,500 of them have been produced since the DRS went into production in 2005. You can find those DRS units in the F-15, F-16, F-22, F-117, A-10, B-1, and B-2, as well as a host of FMS nations, so foreign military sales, We've sold F-16s all across the globe, and I would imagine that you can find these DRS units inside those seats. The article goes on, in Messer's case, the ejection seat shot 130 feet into the air but failed to deploy the chute. He hit the ground about seven seconds after he pulled the ejection handle there and unfortunately passed away. If you haven't listened to episode 23, I will give you the cliff notes, but long story short, Mezer, he landed short. His gear came in contact with one of the approach lights and damaged his left main landing gear. He troubleshot for about 30 minutes after this occurred, elected to come back and land. And upon landing, the jet began to roll because that gear began to fail. He pulled the ejection handle and the seat never sequenced the parachute. The parachute is integrated into the headrest of the ejection seat. At that low altitude, the parachute should have immediately deployed. These ejection seats have three modes, and it's dependent upon how fast you are, how high you are, how low you are, and how slow you are. And the seat should be smart enough to either deploy a drogue chute immediately and get the parachute out, or have you sitting in the seat if you're at high altitude and you fall like a rock until the mid-teens, about 14,000 uh, to 15,000 feet. You'll get what we call man seat separation, where you come out of the seat. 
but at a low altitude like landing, it's basically eject and you'll get one swing or two underneath the parachute if everything is working properly. In Mezzer's case, that did not occur and the fault of the seat was this DRS, again, that digitally, digital recovery sequencer. So the public accident report acknowledged the sequencer's malfunction, but it didn't go into any further detail. And if you listen to 20, episode 23, you realize that I don't talk about it other than the DRS failing and there's nothing further there. However, the way the Air Force does investigations, there's a safety investigation board that takes about 30 days after a mishap. Once that concludes, that goes on to the accident investigation board. Episode 23 is based on the findings of the accident investigation board, which are released. So June 30th mishap happens. On August 3rd, there's a slide deck that the Air Force Research Laboratory produces and now as part of the Freedom of Information Act request is available. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me going through some of those slides, but those AFRL slides are dated August 3rd. So I know you're listening here. I will try and paint a picture as best I can of what these slides contain. On the opening slide, there are comments that are annotated around the PowerPoint, which I assume. And on slide one at the very top, it says, who received this brief? I'm assuming who received this brief was added by the legal team after the fact, because that's a great question. This obviously was presented about just a little over a month after the mishap occurred and nothing, nothing ever made it past briefings and discussions behind closed doors because all the seats are still the same as far as I can tell. So that's the first slide with the intro, which I think is worth pointing out. Slide two, it highlights Teledyne Defense Electronics as the builder of the DRS. And then it also annotates a few things on there, which are some memory chips that were removed or replaced by Teledyne. Now, the first couple times I recorded this and also read it, you, you kind of jump to the worst possible case here of like, why would this be removed? And are they trying to hide something? And I'm going to make the assumption that no one's trying to hide anything here because that would be criminal. My assumption here, and I mentioned this in the YouTube videos, like possibly a chain of custody issue between these different entities, between the Safety Investigation Board, the Accident Investigation Board, Teledyne, Air Force Research Laboratory. Essentially, this component is getting passed around and examined. The Safety Investigation Board leaned on Teledyne to be the expert and determine what went wrong here. Now, there are some questions, obviously, they built this component. They have a lot of liability in this component and they're the ones that are examining it. But there might not be an independent third party with this type of technology and this type of component. I just don't know. So needless to say, I do have questions about that because in the AFRL report and the briefing, there are point outs to the fact that Teledyne either removed components or swapped components out that could be for a myriad of reasons. Again, I'm going to make the assumption that they're swapping these components out when we get into the chips, that when they receive a chip that is missing, possibly they're going through a trouble tree and swapping a good chip out, or so they think a good chip out, to see if that's the point where the DRS failed. Turns out all these things are suspected of being counterfeit, so not too good. So off to a bit of a rocky start, I would say. The first slide shows the, uh, the DRS unit in and itself. 
There is the printed wiring board. Some of you probably know what that is. I didn't, but it's just the little motherboard looking thing. Uh, they received that and they have a picture of that. AFRL said overall the workmanship of the DRS was considered good. That board and the components were generally clean. The solder joints and junctions were well-formed, no cracks. The conformal coatings were somewhat uneven, but coverage appeared to be adequate. There's no evidence of delamination, corrosion, tin whiskers, arcing, or other thermal damage there. But then it notes abnormalities in that working board itself. And there are five surface-mounted devices that did not have that conformal coating, and they had evidence that they had been replaced. Some of the, com some of the components were suspected of being counterfeit. More analysis is needed. The lawyer made a note on here, and I this is the first thing that kind of popped up in my head reading this, is, well, if they're counterfeit, how do they meet the contract specifications? I imagine these boards get tested and there is a unique tester for them. And if it's able to pass that and defeat that with a counterfeit chip, there are definitely more questions and more analysis that needs to occur there. It goes through more capacitors, and then moving into slide seven, this is when it starts talking about suspect counterfeit components or obsolete components. It gives close-up examples and pictures of various chips and parts of each component where they're either damaged, they might, might be heavily sanded, or they just suspect outright that this chip or that chip is completely counterfeit and bogus. The dual axis accelerometers Reading this, to me, there's a lot of things that I have no idea what it's talking about, but at least for the word accelerometer, that's something I can understand in a plane. And they did say important component for the legal notes. And I would imagine that is something, and a pure guess here, that is going to upright the seat or orient the seat correctly when you pull the ejection handle. Because you might pull the ejection handle inverted, 90 degrees of bank, et cetera, and the seat needs to be smart enough to upright uh, to get a good good shoot, good swing, and get you away from wherever the bad stuff is happening. It noted on here that the chip mounted on this, this component was removed by Teledyne after the incident. And then the removal had an installed and replaced chip in there. Now, again, you first read this, and this is probably why I've recorded it four times. You're like, well, that sounds shady. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I can... Again, I'm going to kind of benefit the doubt. I'm assuming that they replaced a chip one for one, not trying to cover anything up, but they were testing to see if that chip was the, the point of failure in that. And how it got handed to then the research lab and vice versa, that process, you know, again, you would assume it's well-established and orchestrated, but I don't have a whole lot of faith. And seeing this kind of break down in this way, it lends to a lot more questions than answers. All right, I'm gonna keep cruising through these slides. It does mention that dual axis accelerometer with the fact that that one chip was removed and replaced with a new chip prior to going to the research laboratory that they suspect even this chip was counterfeit that they replaced it with. There's more pictures of suspected counterfeit components and why, and again, it depends upon how that chip is designed, the way it looks. Smarter people than me can obviously look at that and figure it out. But there are multiple slides in here with examples of suspected counterfeit components on this DRS unit. Slide 15 is getting towards the end here, and it's a summary general, general comments, and I'll read it verbatim off the slide. The parts in the previous slides are strictly considered suspect at this time. 
destructive analysis on these components and analysis of components on other DRS boards would, required, would be required to provide higher level confidence in whether or not they are counterfeit. Thus far, AFRL has not seen evidence that any suspect counterfeit components were causal in the failure of the ACES2 ejection system. Presence of counterfeit parts in the DRS would not necessarily result in an operational failure of the ACES2 ejection system. Counterfeit components in DOD inventory has been an ongoing problem over the past few decades. Often the manufacturer or supplier is not aware of the components that they are counterfeit. The DOD is aware of this problem and working to eliminate these components from the supply chains. All right, end quote. Couple things here. The fact that they say these components, even if they're counterfeit, are most likely not causal on the failure of the ACES2 ejection system. Now, I am not an expert in this. You know, pull the handle, seat goes. That's about as much as I understand. However, I do have a question with the sheer number of suspected counterfeit components inside this DRS and the DRS failed, how can we not attribute some aspect of this these counterfeit components causing the DRS to fail. If these components didn't cause it to fail, what caused the DRS to fail would be my question. Again, there's someone listening who is much smarter than me that probably can explain this better. And if you are, I would love to have you on the show. We could talk about it more. I also go back to the comment on the previous slide. How in the world does something like this get past all the filters and the testers and get through the system. I can buy and believe that this company or these companies, you know, might have counterfeit components that they are completely unaware of. They're buying it from a supplier who's getting it from a supplier. And then the end user who's putting it together might not be an expert in what that thing's supposed to look like. It just looks about right and puts it on the board or a machine does it. Um, so, this is just a overall bad, bad deal in so many aspects. And again, AFRL now saying you basically require complete destruction of these DRS boards in order to determine if they're counterfeit or if they worked or not. And reference back, 7,500 of these are in use. So it's pretty much every fighter uh, out there. A big problem. Okay, that's the 30,000 foot view. This, again, is an article from Air Force Times. Rachel Cohen does a good job, I think, of breaking it down and then putting links. You can see the uh, lawsuit that was filed. You can see these slides all through there. Again, I've linked it down in the show notes. A lot of questions, more questions than answers pop up with this. Big ones being, you know, the AFRL slides. I got briefed in 2020. So at some point it did stop in the food chain. And whether it was a, someone determined it was a factor or not a factor, they might have more data than I do. Uh, I will give them that benefit of doubt, but again, I think it warrants the question. Also, uh, a lot of concern with the fact that a critical component in what is the last line of defense when all goes south is comprised of so many counterfeit components and not determined to be a factor in its failure. So if it didn't fail, what did fail on it? Again, more questions than answers. And there's probably someone much smarter than me out there. Well, I know there's people much smarter than me out there that would have better answers than this. But hopefully this was good information and at least scratched the surface of what I think is a, a larger problem there. That's all I got for this episode. Next up is the episode with Mace. Had fun chatting with her at Oshkosh. That's up there on Patreon for Patreon supporters right now if you want early access to that. 
As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for those who've taken the time to drop a rating or review over on iTunes and Spotify and help the podcast out. We'll see you next time. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.